Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and success strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Ball, and I sure appreciate you being with us. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com or give me a call. Today we're talking about retail and retail real estate. I call it the wild and woolly world of retail. A lot in the news, a lot of retailers closing down. You know, it's interesting, retail properties, while some of them are having issues, they're typically very good real estate. And we're certainly seeing a lot of opportunities in a retail. Let's see uh, how the market's looking. First, please welcome my first guest, Jim Costello. Jim is Senior VP with RC Analytics, and he's joining us on Skype. Jim, thanks for being with us, sir. Thanks for having me here. Well, Jim, how do retail investors or investors in the retail sector, how do they feel about the market right now? What kind of activity level are you seeing in the in transactions? Yeah, it's a Jekyll and Hyde type market. There's different views here. There's some great properties that simply aren't trading. And then there are other properties that have some trouble and you get some transaction activity around them. Uh, deal activity overall is down for the first quarter. We haven't finished the numbers yet for the quarter, but preliminarily it's looking uh, at least a 20% decline on a year-over-year -year basis. Now, some of that is not just retail. Some of that is driven by the broader capital market forces that are impacting all property types. Uh, you'll look at what happened to the long end of the yield curve in the fourth quarter, and then that whipsaw of the 10-year treasury coming back down again earlier this year. It made investors a little bit cautious. They stepped back a bit. Mortgage rates have gone up uh, uh, quickly in response to that increase in the 10-year treasury and the long end of the yield curve. So there's just a lot of uncertainty. So some of the pullback we saw for retail property sales was really a function of that, that broader uh, decline in uh, uh, the stability of the financial markets. But that said, what's happening in terms of sales, it's just not as uh, aggressive as last year for uh, the sector. One thing that happened last year that we haven't seen anything uh, of the like so far in 2019 is entity-level transactions. Again, there are some good retail properties out there. Last year, a number of them sold where companies bought the entire uh, company rather than uh, buying individual assets because you're not going to buy one mall at a time. You're going to buy you know, 20 of the best malls in a large portfolio. Uh, that kind of portfolio and the merger and acquisition type activity, it just hasn't been on the scene so far in 2019. Okay, and if you can hear the siren, Jim is in New York City, uh, where you have the sounds of the city there. And Jim, how is that impacting cap rates overall? Uh, cap rates, even though there are some concerns about retail, uh, they're flat. Uh, you know, interest rates have gone up a bit, uh, and then they came down again, but cap rates really haven't moved. So, you know, there's, there's this notion that, hey, cap rates should move up if the 10-year Treasury moves up. But really, at that point, I think it just means that, that the buyers and sellers will move a little bit further apart. The first thing that will break is deal volume. Uh, buyers may want a lower, cap, uh, 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 lower price and you know, come in at a higher cap rate. Uh, sellers, you know, the opposite. When interest rates are falling, it's easier to bring them together. You know, the, the challenge in a rising rate environment is that it takes a while for everybody to kind of reprice and set their expectations differently uh, for volume to clear. And that's part of what we saw in the first quarter with the declining volume. 
everybody was trying to figure out where, how things should price. And do you expect that to continue through 2019? I don't think so. In fact, I think that we're going to see a bit of a, a, a break in the log jam in the next couple months. There's a couple of things that are driving my expectation on that. First, take a look at deals under contract. Uh, there's been a big uh, buildup of large deals under contract. Uh, looking about a year ago, sort of the average size of deals under contract was around 17 million. We're closer to 50 million for, for deals under contract. So there's some big deals that are just kind of parked at the side waiting to close. And I think part of that is just it takes a little bit longer uh, in this environment where there was some uncertainty around what was happening with rates uh, to, to you know, secure financing and get everything squared away. Uh, with the Fed pretty much uh, saying now that they're done with further rate rises for the year, I think you're going to see some stability there. People are going to get more comfortable with where they are on the, in the financing side. And uh, I think you'll be able to have investors uh, finally step off the sidelines and close some things that they've got in progress. Uh, but really, I think you know, it's all about that stability on uh, the, the financial side of the market. And uh, you know, I think the, the moves recently by the Fed you know, announcing that they're done for now with their rate cycle, uh, with their uh, rise of rates for this part of the cycle, uh, suggests we're going to have some stability and, and investors be able to make some decisions around that. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's uh, you know, what I would think as well, that the activity should be picking up this year because you know, there's a lot of different uses uh, for retail. And if, if some people are thinking, hey, maybe retail is having trouble, some people see retail as an opportunity, maybe we have more movement. Like you said, we have uh, some uh, still really low interest rates. So uh, you said uh, earlier before we were talking that uh, you've seen some, uh, some clients do some interesting things with some of these uh, retail properties. Yeah, well, malls, one thing that, that I've always disliked about malls is all the extra parking. Mm -hmm. uh, sure, you can gear up for that uh, two or three days a year when <laughs> you have all that Christmas shopping coming in. Uh, but in, in malls that, you know, maybe at the Christmas season, they're not even getting that anymore because some of the anchor tenants are just not as strong. You've seen some adaptive reuse of the malls. I mean, this is an expensive proposition, right? We're not talking about... Uh, uh, a simple uh, clean it up, put some new paint on, make it pretty again. Uh, but some folks have figured out how to work with uh, uh, local uh, development agencies to change the zoning, to change the whole structure of what they have at the mall, uh, take some of the outlot parking that is barely used, and do some high-density construction on those. Maybe put in some engineered parking in terms of some garages. Uh, essentially, build some towers for mixed use of office, uh, hotels, uh, residential, near the mall, create some organic demand for activity at the mall from the people who live and work and visit the buildings right next to the mall. And, and that plus the ongoing uh, shopping activity from the folks who are still drawn to the mall, it's a way to revitalize uh, a mall that uh, may have had better times in the past, uh, now, this isn't going to work everywhere. Number one, adaptive reuse is expensive. You know, building all that extra infrastructure is expensive. Uh, additionally, you need city fathers and mothers uh, who uh, agree that you can change the zoning. And that's not going to work everywhere. Uh, and then last, you really need a city and a local economic environment that can support that activity. 
if you are in some rust belt city in the Midwest where all the great jobs are gone because you know, they've been uh, 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 you know, automated, uh, that's just not going to work in the same sense because you don't have the knowledge sector workers and the high income earners uh, that are going to be buying the condo units and occupying the office space that one would hope to build on the outlot. Yeah, it comes down to what the three words, right? Location, location, location. I agree. I think retail Absolutely. has a lot of uh, a lot of retail properties have a, a lot of mixed use and, and different uses that we're seeing. And we certainly see a lot of activity when we put retail properties on the market. Um, Jim, well, how are lenders looking at retail properties today as compared to uh, other sectors? Yeah, lenders are approaching retail with a little more caution compared to other property types. Uh the looking at uh, all the loans originated in 2018, the average LTVs for commercial properties overall were close to 68%. For retail, it was about 63%. So you've got about 500 extra basis points of uh, lower LTV that they're putting in there to kind of cover their risks on that. Uh, the, the issue is that even though there are great retail properties, it's hard for uh, any lender to step up and say, I'm going to make a loan on this retail property because I believe in the foot traffic here, I believe in the consumption activity here. When their board is hearing all these negative stories about retail with uh, closures and uh, uh, the internet taking everything over, yeah, that steady drumbeat in the popular press makes it hard for folks to argue in favor of doing a loan on even a good retail property. So to the extent they are doing them, they're being more cautious. Yeah, and there's not a lot of distress in commercial loans today, but but there's always some, right? Yeah, there's always something that goes wrong. Uh, you know, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, that's when we tracked the most distress. We don't have nearly as much distress today, but when something happens and a retail loan goes bad, uh, the lenders are only recovering around 70% of the value. So that's you know, another way to look at that. It's a 30% loss if you want to take the glass half empty kind of view. Uh, but that, that, that stands in contrast to, say, the apartment market, where when something goes wrong, you're getting about 90% of the value back. So in that sense, that, that relative loss rate you know, makes lenders a little more cautious. And, and I think it's really sort of a, a winner-take-all kind of uh, situation in the retail market. When you lose, you really lose. Yeah. You know, yeah. they, you know, you're you're losing the tenant, you know, the consumer base, the location. Yeah. But when you win, you know, it's all in your favor. Right. And so, you know, I, I think there's just a uh, uh, very much a have and have not situation in the retail market. Right. And we're not seeing new malls uh, today uh, per se, but we are seeing some uh, new retail development, right? Yeah, there there is some new retail development, and and again. It's focused on the cities with uh, you know, a large population base of knowledge sector workers and high-income earners. So it's the largest markets for construction are in, in these large coastal markets uh, like New York, L.A., uh, with you know, all the uh, knowledge sector workers with the disposable income. That said, the pace of construction starts slowed in 2018 relative to 2017, though I'm not necessarily sure that it's something about retail itself. I think the slowdown starts is 
probably something about retail, but it's also a function of just material costs. It's harder to find construction workers now. Uh, subcontractors are well, worth their weight in gold in a lot of markets these days. It's harder to find uh, those uh, great uh, subcontractors. Uh, additionally, material costs are higher because of uh, uh, challenges with new tariffs, and uh, developers are scrambling to find alternative sources for different materials. And so that combines to make it a little bit harder to get any new project off the ground today. Yeah, good point. And I think if uh, folks listening or watching are thinking about career decisions, uh, construction might be something to really look at uh, to, to do today. Well, Jim, what would you leave our audience with as far as maybe some opportunities uh, in the retail sector? You know, the, the opportunities in the retail sector, I think, are going where others fear to tread right now. You know, it is the case that there are good retail properties. Uh, and even those good retail properties, you know, the lender's a little more cautious there relative to uh, other property types. So, you know, jumping in there and being a little more aggressive, uh, you know, especially I can see debt funds, say, uh, getting into that type of opportunity, uh, that would be uh, one uh, thing that, that you know, would, would really stand out in my mind. Uh, and then the other, the other option is just kind of picking through the malls and just really doing your diligence of looking at every individual building and you know, considering uh, the strength of the tenants, the strength of the local uh, market. And, and frankly, you know, some malls at this point, if you're worried about the impact of the internet, uh, a power center with category killer tenants that is still surviving today, it's not as though the internet has just come in as a, a force on shopping. It's been there for five, uh, 10 years in it for a lot of folks. Uh, a power center that is still surviving at this point Maybe there's an opportunity there because it's not as though you're going to see uh, uh, a lot more internet shopping for some of those commodities. You know what's there? You know, people's patterns are pretty well established, so some of those may be uh, uh, an opportunity that uh, others are looking over. Yeah, well said. I think there's a lot of great retail properties, and you think about some of the uses. We talked about adaptive reuse, but we're also seeing uses inside these existing boxes and buildings uh, that are changing, like like co-working and office. And of course, we've seen medical for a long time. We're, we're seeing recreational uses. So I think there's a lot of investors out there that look for that kind of value add opportunity to maybe change a, a use on a property. And I think a lot of these retail properties are a prime target for that. Well, Jim, great information as usual, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. If you'd like more information from Jim, check him out at RC Analytics. And stay tuned with us. We're going to have some more on retail and retail real estate. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I am Michael Ball. The excitement is brought to you by Red IQ. Check them out. They turned operating data for apartments into actionable intelligence. Check them out at RedIQ.com. Well, today we're talking about retail and retail real estate. And 
One of the big factors that everyone reads about and hears about and, and worries about, I guess, if you will, is our retail bankruptcies. Some of these retailers, especially some of the larger ones with, with a lot of stores going bankrupt, how is that impacting landlords? How are landlords preparing for it? What's it doing to the marketplace and out there? And if you are a tenant, uh, what are some aspects you should consider regarding if you're having problems or considering bankruptcy. Well, please welcome my next guest. He's an expert on the topic. His name is Craig Gantz, and Craig is a partner with Ballard Spar, and he's joining us on the phone. Craig, thanks for joining us, sir. Michael, thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk about this. First of all, this is something you guys do. You're headquartered in Phoenix. You help clients all over uh, the country. And when you see bankruptcies in retail, you know, as we say, we're, we all hear about it, read about it. We're seeing it with our, in our own projects that we're handling. What's the velocity of this? Is this, is this still picking up steam? Is this, is this, what do you see there? Look, I think we've got here an overused term that, uh, frankly, I think the folks in my sector are getting sick of called the retail apocalypse. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a catchy term in a sense, uh, especially for the minds of the people that are in the forefront of this, this industry. And, you know, certainly there's a lot to be said for that term. I mean, if you look at 2018, we had some pretty significant bankruptcies when you look at Sears and Mattress Firm, Brookstone, you had Claire's, um, you had Bonton that, that came down the pike. And to be honest, what's surprising now, when you ask specifically about the velocity, uh, I think it uh, is either staying pace or increasing. Typically, we have Q1 as a modest time for bankruptcies and, and retail bankruptcy filings, but we've already had Diesel come down the pike, Charlotte Roos come down the pike, Full Beauty Brands. We have Payless coming down, which we now call a Chapter 22 since it's filed uh, twice already in the uh, in the in recent times. Here, you've got Things Remembered that that has also started. Uh, uh, it's Chapter 11 proceedings, and, and also important, you've got some of these big boxes that continue to, to file. Shopco filed right at the beginning of this year, and Shopco, for those folks that don't have one near them, are usually located in, in some pretty rural areas. Um, they originally had, um, I think, more than 250 stores. They said through the bankruptcy they were going to whittle it down to 100 uh, and they just recently announced, I think it was as early as this week or possibly late last week, that they're now shutting these locations in its entirety. So to specifically answer your question, uh, I, I don't see it dropping off, and I, I think it's only going to continue on. Yeah. Well, it's unfortunate, and, and it's also interesting to see how it impacts different uh, owners and different properties. And, you know, for some owners, hey, let's get rid of this tenant, get a better tenant in there, and, and, and it's an opportunity for them. And, and for some, it's, it's, it's pretty devastating. What are some of the things that you're seeing as far as the impact for landlords? So we've got kind of an inverse correlation here in a way where we've got these bankruptcies and we've got the retail sector that some people would say are, is starting to kind of fall off. You've got other numbers here on the retail sector in general saying that it's thriving and, and, and maybe going through more of a metamorphosis than any sort of death in a way. You know, I think there's, there's a Cicero quote that says the life of the dead is placed in the memory of the living. And that's, that's really what you see when you see the death of Circuit City and Radio Shack and Shopco and uh, you know, survivors like Walmart and Best Buy and Home Depot that are kind of learning the lessons from those folks. But what I think is, is interesting here and why I said you've kind of got this inverse correlation is you, you have this decline in a certain sector of the retail market, yet a increase 
by most metrics that we look at in the real estate market as a whole. So a good example of that would be the mattress firm bankruptcy, where that was essentially a full payment, and what the tenants were told and the landlords were told was, hey, look, we can vacate and leave, and we'll pay you 100% of the damages that you're owed under the bankruptcy code if we leave, or we can negotiate some sort of reduced rate. Now, for the first time in recent memory, we had several clients that looked at this and said, wait, so I can get them out, and I'm using hypotheticals, obviously, we can get them out of here at $4 a square foot, get our damages, which will essentially compensate us in some cases for at least a year, and then bump the rent up to seven, eight, nine dollars a square foot. So it's a windfall for them. It's it's unprecedented. It, it's not heard of in most bankruptcies because usually the bankruptcies and the the economic downturn that we had in kind of the sevens, the eights, and nines there, uh, the real estate prices plummeted as well. So it was putting the landlords in a really precarious position. But in this instance, it was actually a windfall because of rising uh, real estate rates and, and lease rates. And I guess you've also seen it go the other way, right? Where it's pretty devastating for a landlord. Maybe they lose a, a major tenant and now they have problems with the others, right? Of course. And I think the flip side to that story is something like Toys R Us, where uh, the landlords held on for as long as they possibly could. I think there was um, a lot of hope that Toys R Us and, again, that big box would uh, be filled uh, either by Toys R Us or some sort of equivalent that would emerge out of bankruptcy, and that just didn't happen. And so there is a big push right now to try to fill uh, those big boxes that have caused by these bankruptcies, like I had mentioned before, dating it a little bit with Circuit City and Radio Shack, but more recently with, with Sports Authority and some of these Sears locations. But again, some of this news when big box retailers file for bankruptcy, it doesn't happen overnight most of the time. The writing's on the wall. I, you know, It almost feels like Sears uh, has been in bankruptcy for five years, even though they just recently filed. And it gave time for landlords to prepare to make backup plans and start looking at what we're going to fill those big box locations with, and that's where you see the emergence of these gyms and some of these entertainment centers like Dave & Buster's that are starting to, to come in and some of the dine-in theaters to create a, a different kind of experience. And that goes back to what I was saying before, where we're looking at more of a metamorphosis rather than a death. Right. And preparing for replacement tenants is one thing, but um, Craig, what is your advice to prepare financially for for this bankruptcy, if you see a tenant that's, that's having problems, or maybe you're hearing rumors that they're going to file bankruptcy, and maybe they're they're a smaller tenant, or maybe they're a large chain, what should a owner, a landlord, think about doing at that point? I think you need to assess immediately whether this is a long-term viable tenant, and then I think you need to put pen to paper and and scratch out the numbers and see are there concessions, are there agreements that you can uh, negotiate with this tenant that will potentially keep them out of bankruptcy? Or can you negotiate as a landlord, essentially, your own prepackaged bankruptcy kind of on a micro level and get a deal in place that is going to make sense for everyone? You know, when, when some of these landlords are looking at their overall leases, can I get to a situation where, yes, I may need to take a rent reduction on the short term, but can I add term to this deal that will 
make it look more favorable in light of a potential uh, cap rate compression. Right. And when do they need to get counsel uh, to handle this? You know, I, I would say that once you start getting into a situation where you have um, arrearages, when you've got monetary defaults, when it looks like the writing's on the wall, you know, again, if it smells like the tenant's in trouble, then the tenant is probably in trouble, and, and I, would, I would hire counsel at that point uh, for no other reason than to review your default and look at the default and make sure that you have all your rights and remedies lined up and also that you're in a good place to negotiate with this tenant either on the front end or if it's going into the bankruptcy, that you know what your options are and you have a, a full picture of what uh, the tenant's financial position is before you're jumping into the kind of bankruptcy waters there. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And, you know, everyone knows that some of the problems from these retailers are, are Internet-based and the Internet's, uh, we're all buying things online. Um, and some of these tenants just really haven't kind of moved with the times. Uh, but also, what do you say to the folks who say, hey, some of these private equity firms uh, coming in leverage, leveraging up these companies uh, are part of the problem? You know, I, I think it's a good story. And again, like the phrase retail apocalypse, uh, we like to glum on to potential stories where we've got a big bad entity doing <laughs> terrible things to the small folks. But I think the the arguments there or the discussions there, the topics that have been brought up are, are slightly over-exaggerated because I personally do not see any actions that the private equity groups are taking that they haven't been doing for decades. Private equity groups traditionally come in and create a leverage transaction on their buyout. Um, you know, proof that, that there really is, is not a lot of wrongdoing is you've seen a lot of situations where uh, through the bankruptcy, the private equity sponsor uh, has been sued. And they've tried to go after them for bad faith dealings or their dealings within the company and the way they're leveraging and how they're leveraging and how they're making distributions and how they're um, distributing certain dividends. And the majority of those cases have gone absolutely nowhere within the, within the, the bankruptcies. And I think it's easy to point the blame on the private equity groups rather than pointing blames on other factors that cause these bankruptcies. And you know, a lot of the issues that we look at, yes, Amazon's low-hanging fruit, but we do have rising interest rates, and, and money's not getting any cheaper. We're still, you know, by all means at historical lows, but that has caused some of these equity sponsors to take a second look as the money starts uh, rising. You know, you, you've also got a situation where um, a good argument that we're oversaturated in, in retail in a lot of ways, and you had the 80s and 90s where you saw tremendous development of these traditional malls, and, and in a lot of towns where they just didn't need six malls. And so to, to blame it all on the private equity group, I think, is, is, is misleading, quite frankly, unfair, where I think there are a lot of other, other causes there. Yeah. And I guess, you know, uh, in the most part, the companies, you know, they, they decided to do this. I mean, I, I had someone make an offer to, to buy, unsolicited offer to buy my company, and I asked him, just his curiosity, how are you going to fund it? He said, oh, Michael, I'm just going to go get a loan. I'm going to, based on your numbers. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, I could do that. And, uh, right. <laughs> can still own the company. Uh, I don't want to leverage my company uh, like that. So, uh, well, Craig, what would you leave our audience with to consider and think about related to bankruptcy and uh, retail and, and the market we see today? You know, I, I would really say, I think I'd start with, it's not going away. Um, I'm not sure that I would take the opinion that it's accelerating, but it's, it's certainly going to stay consistent uh, with the way we were in 2018. 
And I would also, I think, encourage uh, the folks listening as well to really take a good hard look on what segments and what industries they're looking at putting in as far as their tenants. And, and you know, we're having a relative shift on what sort of tenants are the successful tenants and what sort of tenants we're looking at that could find their way into into bankruptcies. You know, you've You've got a real fundamental shift on these big boxes, like I said, on, on who's going to take those going forward. We've got examples of Pier 1 and Models on the bankruptcy scenarios here that look like they are starting to prepare for bankruptcy. So I would be concerned on who we're looking at as far as big boxes and what segments of the retail industry we're fitting into the tenants as kind of a uh, a a parting message to your audience. Yeah, well, that's a good one, Craig. I like it because, you know, retail, I think, is one of those property types where there's a lot of opportunities, uh, but you really need to underwrite every tenant in every industry and consider the impact there. Craig, good information, sir. Thank you for joining us. Michael, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And if you'd like to get more information from Craig Gantz, his uh, law firm's uh, uh, practice is Ballard Spar, that's S-P-A-H-O. Are. Well, stay with us. We'll have more on retail and retail real estate. I'm Michael Ball. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This uh, segment's brought to you by Byproxy. That's B-I-P-R-O-X-I. Check it out. It's Byproxy.com. It's a listing service. It's free to list properties and free to check out properties. Well, today we are talking about retail and retail real estate. And one of the um, good views, I think, of, of the retail market is when you talk to an attorney who focuses on retail and retail real estate, you kind of get some insight from their uh, multitude of clients and what they're seeing from their desk. Please welcome my next guest. It's Scott Grossfield, and he's a partner with the law firm Cox Castle and Nicholson, and he's joining us on the phone. Scott, thank you for being with us, sir. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. Well, Scott, you guys handle uh, a lot of retail real estate from, from development and, and landlords, tenants. You work with a lot of landlords. And uh, I'm curious, especially on the West Coast where you do a lot of uh, work, uh, you're headquartered in Los Angeles, um, and you, you guys saw a lot of development out there. What are the trends now of what you're seeing? Well, right now uh, we've gone from a period where there was a lot of development before the Great Recession to a point where, because mainly uh, housing, new housing has stopped, where the existing development is uh, being um, replaced with infill situations, where vacant space is having to be released due to a lot of large spaces uh, going dark, large tenants such as Sears or Macy's closing their stores, and landlords having to be creative to uh, fill them with new tenants and a lot of landlords taking their shopping centers that might have been B or C shopping centers and wanting to value add them by making them uh, prettier and nicer and improve them. Yeah, yeah, a lot of redevelopment going on. I'm curious when uh, you have t landlords that you represent, Scott, and they have a big space, a retailer's given up, 
How many cases uh, are, does that hurt them financially? And how many cases is it maybe a win that they can get a better tenant and a better tenant mix and more rent? You know, oftentimes when a landlord is faced with a situation where a big store like that has left, those tenants were paying a lower rent uh, because that was just a deal that had to be made at the time, especially with a department store. So when they're given back that space, they're actually given a pretty big opportunity to uh, make a better deal with potentially lots of uh, uh, different tenants, multiple tenants. So they divide up that store space. Uh, they might have multiple levels, and they can make a lot more money by having that opportunity. Yeah, it's, uh, retail is interesting. It's, a, it's good, good real estate typically, and uh, I think some of this is a windfall. And of course, there's some landlords that it's obviously uh, bad news and it's hurting them. So when you look at the distress level that, that your clients have had over the last several years, what are the trends now? Are you still seeing uh, tenant defaults at the same level you've seen for the last several years? Yeah, we're seeing uh, defaults um, at a similar level. Um, we're, uh, we're seeing tenants that want to protect themselves more against potential uh, uh, economic uh, exposures. Um, so whereas before uh, the recession, there were uh, situations where um, tenants were negotiating for significant co-tenancy rights and they got them, uh, but I think landlords learned their lesson from giving them because with the recession, um, uh, lots of landlords uh, suffered greatly from the domino effect of um, co-tenancy failures, um, and it cost landlords greatly because in a lot of situations, uh, when a co-tenancy failed maybe uh, in their shopping center and uh, uh, it resulted in maybe one tenant um, having rights and closing, it resulted in multiple tenants having uh, uh, a, a co-tenancy uh, rights uh, on top of those because it resulted in a domino effect. Landlords are no longer agreeing to those. And what, what tenants are now uh, insisting upon are uh, gross, gross deals, uh, capped cam, fixed cam, and things like that. Um, and landlords... Uh, are trying to resist that to the best of their ability, and whether or not a landlord um, is able to uh, uh, stay, uh, whether or not a landlord is able to avoid uh, agreeing to a gross deal or a fixed cam will depend upon the relative bargaining strengths of the parties and how good the shopping center is. Yeah. If yeah. Uh, if the strengths are relatively equal and a landlord does agree to a fixed cam, a reasonable compromise or a compromise that we generally see agreed to is maybe a true up at an option stage or something like that on cam. Right, and for those of you that might not be in, uh, doing a lot of retail real estate, uh, these rights for co-tenancy give uh, maybe some of the smaller tenants right to get out of their lease at some point and reduce the rent. If a larger tenant goes dark, meaning they're they're not open there, or they or they really just shut down and close out the the store. Um, and then also the tenants are always concerned about their overall uh, uh, cost for for the project and being there. And uh, uh, yeah, so they're trying to control uh, their cost and. Uh, uh, and landlords, traditionally retail, want to pass through everything. And one of those things that landlords uh, look to for income on a lot of these projects is a percentage rent. And, uh, uh, and, and with the Internet sales, 
what are you seeing there? Is that a, a big uh, lease uh, clause that uh, people are arguing about these days? Typically, they wouldn't argue very much about uh, what was included in gross sales in a percentage rent clause. But now that the Internet and omnichannel services are growing and e-commerce is becoming a bigger factor in what um, existing tenants are are producing when are producing part of their business. Uh, tenants are increasingly trying to exclude from gross sales and therefore what they're paying as part of their percentage rent, internet sales. So uh, yeah, it's becoming a larger argument and uh, a more significant part of the negotiation in leases uh, as to whether or not internet sales are included uh, in gross sales. For the most part, uh, tenants are trying to argue, hey, um, if something is not ordered at a point of sale location in the premises uh, or it's not accounted for as a sale according to their accounting standard accounting provisions, then it shouldn't be included in gross sales. But landlords try and argue and stand firm that if if a product is ordered uh, at a point of sale system in the premises, if it's delivered from inventory from the premises, if it's otherwise fulfilled from the premises, uh, otherwise delivered through the premises, then it should be included uh, in gross sales. And this is a really growing issue because e-commerce is only a growing issue. And 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, premises might contain various terminals that you know just include or are there for just the purpose of ordering things from the Internet. And if you're not including Internet sales as part of uh, gross sales for percentage rent purposes, you might be, as a landlord, really missing out. Yeah, I mean, there a lot of these becoming showrooms, and even the online uh, stores want to have a brick-and-mortar presence, if nothing else, uh, for the showroom. So that sounds very reasonable. If it's picked up there, delivered there, uh, or ordered there, that it should be uh, part of the gross sales numbers. And... And it is important to a lot of landlords, right, that a large part of the, the income the, that they're expecting is, is from these percentage sales. Well, Scott, what would you leave our audience with related to, to retail and, and legal matters today? Anything else that uh, you're kind of seeing as a trend out there with uh, your clients? You know, I think that a lot of people and commentators in the industry have a lot to say about e-commerce and how it's impacting brick-and-mortar retail. The one thing that I would say is retail is probably the largest segment of the U.S. economy. Brick-and-mortar retail, I don't believe, is going anywhere. There's always going to be a market for it. It's, it's very resilient. It changes. It has changed over the last 10, 15 years as the Internet has grown. It will continue to change, um, and it will continue to grow. And I, I just think that... Uh, you know, what we see today will be very different than what we will see tomorrow, and it will just continue to flourish. Yeah, it's not going away. Scott, good information. Thank you for joining us, sir. All right, thank you. All right, stay with us. We'll have more on retail and retail real estate. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Have you seen buyproxy.com? Brokers list properties, buyers and tenants search properties all at no cost. They also have a suite of marketing services. Check them out at buyproxy.com. That's spelled B-I-P-R-O-X-I.com. 
Are you involved in the multifamily industry? Check out RedIQ.com. You can easily and effectively turn operating data into actionable intelligence. Request a demo or try it for free at RedIQ.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by Commercial Agent Success Strategies. Check it out at CommercialAgentSuccess.com. It's the ultimate training for commercial agents. Well, today we're talking about retail. One of the largest retail events in the world, in fact, one of the largest conventions in the world, is ICSC Recon in Vegas. And it's coming up May 19th and May 22nd. And it's interesting when you think about retail today. I mean, there's a lot of changes going on. There's new players, there's new tenants, there's new uses. And ICSC Recon has changed as well. Let's hear what is in store for us in Vegas. Please welcome Stephanie Sigelski. And she's with ICSC, which is the International Council of Shopping Centers. And she's joining us on Skype. Stephanie, good to see you again. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Well, Stephanie, as I mentioned, I mean, there's a lot of changes going on in retail today. And, and, and the convention every year, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, it seems to really capture what's going on in the retail world, uh, especially related to real estate. What's new at ICSC Recon this year? We have a lot new this year. Um, as you mentioned, the, the retail landscape and the retail real estate landscape is changing. It's evolving. Uh, and so are we. So we are trying to bring what's happening in the industry into the event. So this year we are adding a health and wellness center, uh, which will be completely focused on healthcare and fitness, um, CVS, uh, Kaiser Permanente, Walgreens will all be there. Uh, we're, we're partnering with Walgreens for Red Nose Day, so that'll be a part of it. Uh, there will be additional um, fitness companies there to talk about um, how that's important, not just to consumers, but to um, landlords as well. Uh, we'll have our retail and focus uh, section, which we introduced at New York Deal Making and are taking to Recon because um, it was so widely embraced in, in December. So that will be emerging brands. We have, I think, almost two dozen emerging brands who are retailers who were formerly online and are now opening brick and mortar stores. And they will be there to talk about their experiences, um, showcase their products, and really give um, some perspective from, from the retailer side of things on what they're looking for, because they are looking for different things now than uh, traditionally uh, retailers have looked for as far as leases and space go. Um, we will have our talent development um, pavilion, so people can go and get career advice. Uh, we're going to have a whole college and university area. Our specialty retail, our outlet centers, our innovation exchange will be in the grand lobby. And that will showcase all the technology changes that are happening within the industry and the companies that are redefining technology that will go into retail. Um, some exciting things happening there. We will also have a finance pavilion. So you can you know, learn about financing properties and what that takes. So in addition to the general deal-making and um, the uh, just, you know, meeting people and talking to people and networking, we have these great new areas that reflect the industry as a whole. Yeah. 
I mean, the event, if you haven't been uh, and you're a listener or viewer, you've got to go. Uh, it's a great experience. And you know, I remember the first time I went many, many years ago and I figured, hey, there's booth, there's networking, but uh, it's so much more. And there's the deal making's incredible. I mean, everywhere you look, there's someone signing a lease or signing a, yeah. an agreement and uh, seeing where they want to be uh, in, a, in a new development. So it's pretty incredible. And the parties and, and the people and, uh, you know, everything that, that it is recon. And you mentioned... Um, you know, talent development. And one of the things I think that's great about the event, even if you don't attend any educational uh, events mm -hmm. there or seminars, you're going to learn a lot just from being around everyone. But you have a special day, right, that's really geared toward uh, development and training? We do. That's, that's on Sunday. Um, so on Sunday, it's all the professional development. It's uh, going to be a great lineup. Um, but in addition, and we have that day dedicated to professional development. Um, so, you know, the sessions run throughout the day. They're not concurrent, so you can you can make all of the sessions if you want to. But additionally, we're going to have some um, sessions that take place in retail and focus and innovation exchange and some panel sessions and whatnot that are also educational in nature uh, for people to listen to and learn from. Uh, so it's we're kind of expanding that. But Sunday is the day that... Um, is dedicated to professional development. And what about the fun side? What type of speakers and entertainment do you have this year? So our Sunday keynote this year is Tony Romo. We are incredibly excited about that. He's um, just a genuinely good guy. And so he has agreed to have a, a football throwing contest with oh, nice. one of our attendees. Uh, and as part of that, he will... Um, we will. There will be a donation made to a charity of his choice, and and in the amount of fifty thousand uh, dollars. So that's very exciting. Uh, we have Marcus Lemonis, the prophet from CNBC, on Monday, and then on Tuesday we have Julie Rice, who was one of the co-founders of Soul Cycle, and who is now the partner at WeWork, and really uh, reinventing what's going on over there, which is another area that. We are looking at because that is important to retail real estate because they are taking up space. Yeah, yeah that's amazing to see the different uses in retail today, and including uh, tenants like uh, WeWork. And uh, you don't have to really, be, you don't have to be a member to attend, right? Anyone can attend. Anyone can attend. Um, we encourage everyone to attend. Uh, of course, we encourage you to become a member as well. But uh, anyone can attend the event. Uh, you can still register online or you can register in person when you get to the event. Right. And uh, just go to ICSC.org, right? That's correct. It is on the homepage and it's an easy click. Yeah. And then what about uh, uh, music? Do you have some uh, entertainment? Um, we actually uh, have a, a special event going on for some of our participants. Um, we've partnered with CoStar. Uh, and there will be a special VIP event um, with Imagine Dragons this year. Oh, nice. So nice. that's kind of kind of different and exciting. Um, so we're looking forward to that. Yeah, that's great. Well, Steffi, what kind of tips would you give attendees to, to get the most out of uh, Recon this, this year? Uh, to see as much as possible. I, I am a, a, a huge proponent of education. So I love professional development day. I tend to go to the sessions myself. I learn a lot from them. Um, but really walk the floor, walk North hall, central hall and South hall, 
definitely visit Retail and Focus and the Health and Wellness Center um, to get a sense of what is changing within the, the landscape. The Innovation Exchange is great. Um, and definitely walk the floor and get a sense. It is, like you said, it's very exciting to see the deals being made. Uh, for a lot of uh, these landlords, every deal they make for the next year happens during recon. So um, it's just important to walk around and really see everything that you can. How big is the, the floor, the number of attendees uh, this year? What do you expect? We have over, uh, over 30,000 attendees. Uh, we don't have a final number because we do have on-site registration, so we won't know until after the event what the final numbers are. Um, and then uh, I should have checked this. It's, I think... I can't remember how many total square feet, but we take up all of the Las Vegas Convention Center, um, all three halls, and every space is, is filled. It is, it's quite a sight. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll share a few tips. I mean, one, I think it's planned. If you want to see people, people actually get very busy uh, there with appointments. So uh, try to arrange your meetings, your lunches, your, 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 you know, everything you can ahead of time. Uh, and also maybe plan where you're going to go, because what is it from one end to the convention to the other, almost a mile? It is something like that. Yeah. I, I know our team actually use golf carts to get around. Mm -hmm. uh, and granted, they're, they're kind of running from place to place. But it is, uh, it is quite the length. And if you include the Westgate, where the keynotes take place and the professional development takes place, it adds that much more. So, yeah, we have directories on site um, with maps. And it, like you said, plan it out. Uh, it's always good to make the appointments before the event starts and, um, you know, otherwise just soak it all in and enjoy it. Yeah, enjoy it. And the mobile app uh, is a really nice mobile app, too, as well. How, how will you find that uh, in the App Store? They can download it. It's, you know, ICSB. Uh, search that and you will find the mobile app and it'll be up and ready to go when uh, the event opens. Yeah, that's real important because there's so much to do. There's so much to see. You're never going to be able to take it all in. You're never going to see everyone you'd like to see. So to try to get organized and plan it and enjoy it. And if you have anything to do with retail, you got to be there. Stephanie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, enjoy the uh, convention. I know it'll be big and fun. Thank you. All right. And uh, thank you for joining us on uh, America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Commercial Agent Success Strategies incredible training for commercial agents. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Bomi International. For facilities and property management education, visit bomi.org. Buyproxy.com. Your global commercial real estate listing service. Visit buyproxy.com. Red IQ. Turning multifamily data into actionable intelligence. Visit rediq.com.